60 Minutes, coming up next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I'm Lex Friedman. I run my own business, so I know from experience hiring new employees can be tough. Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 50-plus job sites, including social networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. And with ZipRecruiter's premium traffic boost, you can get up to three times more candidates. Quickly screen applicants, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 200,000 businesses. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free, plus get 30% off your first traffic boost by going to ZipRecruiter.com deal. That's ZipRecruiter.com deal. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com deal. We begin tonight with a story by Bob Simon, our colleague and friend, whom we lost this past Wednesday in a tragic car accident. In a 47-year career reporting from every corner of the globe, Bob set the standard for CBS News. On Wednesday evening, Bob finished a story intended for this broadcast tonight. It's especially fitting that the producer was his daughter, Tanya, a veteran producer at 60 Minutes who from time to time worked with her dad. We thought the best way to pay tribute, and what Bob would have wanted, would be to put his story on the air in his own words, beginning right here. The worst Ebola outbreak on record has killed 9,000 in West Africa, but all it took was a few Ebola patients in the United States to show how unprepared we were here, particularly because there weren't any approved vaccines or drugs available to fight the disease. Now. More than a year after the epidemic hit, clinical trials are at last underway in West Africa. One of the drugs to be tested is called ZMAP, and it was used last year to treat nine patients. Only nine, because that's all the ZMAP there was at the time, hardly enough to make a dent in the epidemic. So the question now is, will we be prepared for the next one? Now, Bob Simon. This is the front line in the war against Ebola in Canada's National Microbiology Lab on the desolate prairie in Manitoba. It's a good place to experiment with viruses because inside are some of the most dangerous in the world. Which is why Dr. Gary Kobinger, who has spent a decade here trying to find a cure for Ebola, has to seal himself inside layers of protection before getting to work. One pair of gloves isn't enough. Covinger's suit has to be hooked up to oxygen. He could be an astronaut. The door to the lab is sealed as if it were in a submarine, and the air is changed 15 times an hour. It takes up to a year of training before anyone is allowed inside, so we had to interview Covinger behind bulletproof glass. What are you working on today? I'm going to do some infection with Ebola because we are trying to improve the treatment we have developed. The treatment he helped develop here is ZMAP, widely believed to be the most promising drug candidate 
to combat the Ebola virus, which is stored in this tank at minus 320 degrees. So this is how it looks and what it is. It doesn't look like much, but the virus in that vial could kill thousands. Of all the viruses you have in here, is Ebola number one? Is it the most dangerous? Yeah, it, it is one of the most aggressive, if not the most aggressive. That's because of how quickly it takes over the body, as Dr. Kent Brantley learned last summer. The medical missionary who was treating Ebola patients in Liberia, he was the first American to come down with the disease, and there was very little that could be done to help him. Did you know at the time that there were any Ebola drugs being experimented with? Personally, I didn't know anything about what was being done in the world of research in Ebola. I figured it was a forgotten disease that drug companies weren't interested in working on. He'd never heard of ZMAP and didn't know that Gary Kobinger had brought a small amount to the neighboring country of Sierra Leone to see if it could withstand heat and travel. Kobinger never expected to put it to use until word got to him that Brantley wanted the drug. ZMAP had cured monkeys, but no human had ever taken it. You knew it was experimental. You knew it had never been tested on a human being. Did you have any hesitation, or did you figure it's the only shot I've got? I was dying. I was actively dying. So we thought this drug is possibly going to help. You were both a patient and a guinea pig. I have gone from being physician to patient to lab rat. After you took the ZMAP, did you start feeling better very quickly? Actually, my body began to shake and shiver violently, uh, and my breathing got worse. And you remember that? I remember the people around me praying over me. Um, but after that first hour, my breathing improved, the shaking stopped. After two or three hours of receiving the drug, I actually was able to get up and walk to the bathroom, something I had not done in more than a day and a half. It's impossible to say what role ZMAP played in Brantley's recovery because it also received an experimental blood transfusion and first-rate medical care in the United States. Still, after a story got out, there was a mad scramble for the eight antidotes that remained of what was being called a miracle drug. So putting things... In the simplest possible terms, you have invented a cure for Ebola. Uh, we hope. You, you've done experiments. I know it works. I, I, I don't need <laughs> to be convinced. You know it works. Guarantee you, know you it that works. it works. I will, I will take it in a flash myself if I will get Ebola. But to really make this a real uh, scientific fact, it needs a, what's called a randomized um, trial. But before any kind of trial could begin, supplies of ZMAP ran out. Now, more than a year after the outbreak hit, just enough is finally being produced for a small clinical trial in Liberia that could start as soon as next week. If West African lives are to be saved, salvation may well come from western Kentucky, from these nondescript greenhouses in Owensboro. Their product? A plant usually more associated with destroying lives than with saving them. Tobacco. This is where the science has turned into a product where ZMAP is manufactured in row after row of this odd-looking variety of tobacco. Can I smoke it? Can I chew it? I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, but it's different? It's very different. Uh, Hugh Hayden is the president of Kentucky Bioprocessing, which was recently bought by cigarette giant Reynolds American. 
when you say tobacco to most people today, it suggests cancer and emphysema, heart failure, death. No question there's tobacco a bit of Tobacco is known in our culture as a killer. There's clearly a bit of irony there, but again, the, there are good things that can be done with it, and that's, uh, that's our objective here. But ZMAP isn't easy to produce. It takes six weeks. The tobacco plants first have to be grown for 24 days. Then they're immersed in a liquid containing a gene that tells them to make special antibodies which help the immune system fight viruses, in this case, Ebola. As the plants grow, they copy those antibodies over and over again. Xerox machine for antibodies. That's essentially what it does. It makes it over and over and over again. The leaves are then ground up into a liquid which looks like a juice you'd buy at a health food store. Since ZMAP is made up of three different antibodies, the process has to be repeated three times using 6,000 pounds of new tobacco plants. And the yield? How much ZMAP will you get out of three tables like this? How many people can you cure of Ebola if it works? It would be dozens, best case. Dozens? Dozens. Which is not very much. Not very much? Dozens of cures where 9,000 people died in this epidemic. Sounds like using a bottle of water to put out a forest fire. A lot of work to do in terms of scaling this process if, if in fact, this does become uh, a verified treatment for Ebola. But the question now is why did we have so little of the drug when the epidemic broke out and so little of it today? That's when it helped to go back 12 years to when the basic idea for ZMAP came about at this minuscule company in San Diego. MAP Biopharmaceutical has a workforce of nine. Its founders, Larry Zeitlin and Kevin Whaley, who recently teamed up with Canadian virologist Gary Covinger, could only ever interest one investor in their drug, the U.S. government, which has been funding them ever since. So you've sort of been a, a science company on the dole. <laughs> For the most part, yeah. <laughs> you can say you can say that. Map Bio started out with very modest grants, but managed to hobble along. Then, in 2011, the Pentagon expressed interest, but didn't give the company any cash or contract for another two years. But the minute you're working with the government, you're dealing with bureaucracy. You're dealing with time lags. You're dealing with rigidity. You're dealing with a slow pace. Why didn't you go the venture capital route? Uh, these are the kind of products that uh, venture capitalists are, are not enthusiastic about because they don't have a near-term horizon, for uh, near return uh, on investment. So we really needed the government on this one. We certainly did. The government started funding companies like MapBio long before the Ebola outbreak. After 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, President George W. Bush set aside billions of dollars for the acquisition of medical countermeasures against roughly a dozen radiological, nuclear, chemical, and biological threats, including Ebola. The Soviets and a Japanese cult had tried to weaponize it. And in 2006, it became the job of a little-known government agency to develop the most promising of those antidotes, of which ZMAP is one. It's called the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, and it is in effect the government's very own emergency pharmaceutical company. That's a kit that actually first responders take out. Dr. Robin Robinson heads Barter. This is the emergency medical cabinet? That's correct. His cabinet 
is an exhibit of the dangers which have already been conquered. Among them, vaccines for smallpox and anthrax, drugs for botulism, radiation sickness. You still have room in the cabinet. What would you like to see here that is not oh, here yet? I hope that we actually have a bowl of vaccines and therapeutics like ZMAP on the shelf. How soon do you think we'll see them there? I hope they're there next year. But that might be optimistic. Drug development takes a lot of time and costs a lot of money. And Barda has already spent $25 million trying to fast-track ZMAP. And to increase production, it has called on government-funded manufacturing centers that were established to make drugs and vaccines quickly in case of an emergency like the Ebola epidemic. But months have gone by, and they haven't produced a single dose of ZMAP. Aren't these facilities supposed to be quick? Flexible and nimble at the same time? They are supposed to be nimble and quick in what they do. But uh, any bureaucracy has its challenges, and certainly we can always improve on that, and we always look to do that, in fact. Barda is now looking for other ways to make ZMAP. Dr. Robert Cadillac, President Bush's point man on biodefense, says no matter who you blame, it should never have come to this, rushing to get ready when an epidemic is in full swing. Ebola has been on the radar since... 76 drugs and vaccines are still in development none are in the market so why haven't they been developed well and that's that's the issue is whether we're spending enough resources to bring these forward in, in a way that is commensurate with the perceived risk Cadillac, who helped write the legislation creating BARDA, argues it never got the budget for drug development it needed to adequately prepare the country for Ebola or for many of the other agents the government says threaten us. Are we prepared for anthrax? Do we have medical countermeasures for anthrax? Yes. Smallpox? Yes. Marburg virus? No. Plague? Not quite ready for prime time. The fallout from a radiological or nuclear attack? Something like Fukushima, if it were to happen today, uh, I think we'd be scrambling. Chemical attack? Uh, No. In some ways, we were prepared, and I'd say less so today than we were then. In terms of the accumulation of your responses, it doesn't sound very good, does it? It's not very promising. And again, I think the Ebola crisis offers the opportunity to highlight to the American public and to policymakers, both in Congress and the White House, that we can do better on this. We must do better on this. And if there's any other requirement for a reminder, Ebola has served that purpose. More about Bob Simon later in the broadcast, and we'll have a special edition of 60 Minutes Presents All About Bob next Sunday. To watch more Bob Simon stories from his 47-year career, go to 60MinutesOvertime.com, sponsored by Lyrica. 60 Minutes, coming up after this short break. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment, information, and educational programming. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Audible has more than 150,000 titles to choose from. Fiction, nonfiction, bestsellers, every category imaginable. They even have tons of exclusive content you can't get anywhere else. Just download and listen on an iOS device, Android, Kindle Fire, Windows Phone, 
in over 500 MP3 players. A few key features that make the app great are chapter navigation, my library, 30-second rewind, and the button-free mode. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash 60 minutes and choose from over 150,000 titles. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash 60 minutes. That's audiblepodcast.com slash 60 minutes and get started today. Now, CBS News correspondent Clarissa Ward on assignment for 60 Minutes. It's been more than a month since Sharif and Saeed Kawashi killed 12 people in an attack on the office of Charlie Hebdo, a satirical magazine in Paris. The next day, Amadi Koulibaly joined in the carnage, first shooting a policewoman and then four shoppers in a kosher grocery store. The killings shook France to its core, now that the immediate shock has worn off, we're starting to learn more about how French authorities miss this threat. The picture that is emerging is of a new kind of terrorist, born and raised in some of France's roughest neighborhoods, a threat so close to home they didn't see it. Cell phone cameras captured the final moments of the Charlie Hebdo attack. The gunmen were so confident, the sidewalk execution of a wounded police officer so cold-blooded, many concluded it was the work of a sophisticated terror network. Analysts seized on the tight grouping of bullet holes in a police windshield as evidence that the attackers were highly trained, hinting at an exotic foreign threat. As the gunmen carried out the killings, they shouted that they were part of al-Qaeda in Yemen, when a third man launched separate attacks, Paris felt like a city under siege. As the identities of the gunmen leaked out, there was another shock to come. Sharif Kawashi, his brother Saeed, and Amadi Koulibaly were all well known to French authorities. Two of the men had been in and out of prison. All three had once been under surveillance. Criminologist Xavier Rofay has taught some of France's top cops and is now learning from them how the system broke down in this case. All three of these men were very well known to the police. How did this happen? And not only were they known to the police on the terrorist side, because they had a terrorist past, but they were also known on the criminal side. Those are not 100% pure terrorists. Those are hybrids, people who at the same time are hardened criminals. So why did that happen? Is that the French legal system has a small box for terrorists, has another small box for criminals, and if you are at the same time one and the other, you fall into the crack in the middle and you are lost. This is basically what happened. Is this the new face of terrorism, this hybrid between jihad and petty criminals? Of course. Those are the only ones that are left. You know, uh, jihad as an ideal has degenerated along the last 10 or 20 years. 
15, 20 years ago, the Bin Laden type. Now you have common criminals and thugs. One day they drink beer, the next day they smoke pot, the third day they are in a, in a, in a mosque. So those are totally unstable people. They are human bombs, you know. They can explode any time. Sharif Kawashi is a perfect example of that hybrid phenomenon. He and his brother Saeed were orphans of Algerian descent who ended up in foster care. As a teenager, Sharif was more interested in rap than religion. This video, shot by his friends, documents that period in his life when he was smoking pot and chasing girls. He worked as a pizza delivery boy. But his life changed in 2003 when he became radicalized by a group of young Muslims in this Paris neighborhood. They were angry about the American invasion of Iraq and set up a recruitment ring to send young French Muslims to fight jihad against U.S. forces. But Sharif was arrested the day before he was due to fly, and he served 20 months in jail for his part in the conspiracy. Vincent Olivier was Kouachi's lawyer at the time. He says his client was a bit of a coward who was actually glad to be caught. He was a lost and confused young boy, and um, he told to the judge, to me and to the court later, that he was relieved of being arrested because he was afraid to go to Iraq and he thought that he, he wouldn't come back, uh, at least in one piece. So it was kind of relieved to be um, to be arrested. Yeah. Do you believe that? At this time, I believed it quite strongly. Um, maybe it played us all, but uh, this wasn't my feeling. One investigator involved in the case told us Sharif and his associates were dismissed as quote mad dogs and morons who posed no serious threat. The problem was not to know if we would have have the terrorist attack, but when. Alain Chouet is the former head of security intelligence at the DGSE, which is France's CIA. He says French authorities were focused on the wrong threats. No one in Yemen, in Al-Qaeda, gave to the Kouachi brothers any instruction to attack Charlie Hebdo such on such day, such time, such date. So what did they give them? What kind of well, instructions? They, they had no instructions. It's their own initiative. Some people have suggested that maybe uh, security forces were so fixated on finding terrorist kingpins, part of a larger network, that to focus on a petty criminal like Sharif Kawashi or Amadi Koulibaly, it seemed not very exciting, uh, not very important. When you are always uh, catching little fishes which are forgotten after two or three years, then you, you, you try to, be, to catch the big one. And you put all your means on the possibility of catching the big one. But now it seems that little fish are the real danger. Sure. The problem is ours. The problem is in our own society, on our own territory. Amadi Koulibaly's life is a good illustration of that problem. Like Sharif, he was a hybrid. 
He had a long rap sheet for armed robbery and was trying to live the good life gangster style. On beach vacations, he posed for pictures with his girlfriend who was in a bikini. But look at this later photo. The couple is still together, but the picture is radically different. This is where it's believed his transformation took place, in an infamous French prison, Fleury-Mérogis, where Koulibaly served time for robbery. It was here that he met Sharif Kouashi, and where they both came under the influence of this man, Jamal Bagal, an Al-Qaeda operative doing time for a conspiracy to blow up the U.S. Embassy in Paris. Begal was in solitary confinement, but Koulibaly later described how the men would communicate by talking through an open window and even passing notes to each other. The dysfunctional French prison system had put the little fish in with a shark. Jamal Begal was in solitary confinement, right? How, if you're in solitary confinement in prison, are you still able to radicalize two young men? It's a joke. How do you want that to isolate someone when you have 50,000 cells and 65,000 prisoners? After they were released from prison, the three continued to meet. These surveillance photos show Sharif and Koulibaly visiting Begal in the French countryside. Begal, for them, is the guru type. They don't know much about Islam. So they are like kids saying, Mommy, what if I do this? Mommy, what if I do that? And who is Mommy? Is the guru. Bagal and Koulibaly were soon heading back to prison for another plot. But what has surprised everyone is that after Koulibaly was released in March of last year, he was never followed again. Well, it's funny that in France, for the sexual criminals, we have a data bank fingerprints, DNA, they, they are obliged to go to the police precinct or to the gendarmerie every week. They have to say where they live, where they work, and so on. But for the terrorists, nothing. When they are finished with their sentence with jail, it's finished. Nobody follows. How is that possible? It's possible. <laughs> In 2011, after at least one of the Kouashis briefly visited Yemen, the brothers went quiet, and just seven months before the attacks, their surveillance stopped. As with their friend Koulibaly, they had slipped off the radar. During that time, the Kouachi brothers were quietly preparing, uh, buying hoods, buying machine guns, Kalashnikov, and uh, stealing cars in order to attack uh, Charlie Hebdo. This is what happened. So in a sense, because they have this criminal experience, they're also better able to outsmart the authorities because they have so much experience with law enforcement. They know how they work. They have been trained to spot the cops arriving, the police car, undercover car. They can spot them from other cars. They know where to buy guns. They are streetwise. That's because they grew up in places like this, poor French suburbs called banlieue. Known for high crime, high unemployment and poor integration, the fear is that they have become fertile recruiting ground for radical Islamists looking for foot soldiers. This banlieue called Epinay sits on the edge of Paris and is a hub for moving drugs into the capital. 
After getting approval from local crime bosses, we took a tour with Rabba Saray, a social worker who has lived here all his life. Kalashnikov, c'est pas. France has very strict gun laws, but this man told us that if you have the cash, buying a Kalashnikov assault rifle is not difficult here. What is difficult is getting a job and getting out. France has never been able to put all its children at the same level. This country has left some by the side of the road. And these abandoned children grow up badly, they're badly educated, they have a bad image of their country, and they're easy prey for fanatics. By the time the Kuwashis and Koulibaly popped back on the radar with their attacks, it was too late for French authorities to connect the dots. Security services still don't know the extent to which the plots were coordinated. While the Kawashi brothers said they were sent by al-Qaeda, Koulibaly declared allegiance to ISIS. But it's unlikely that either group provided much more than inspiration. We can assume that the uh, problem of Kawashi or Koulibaly is not, is not an overall terrorist problem. Uh, it's a psychiatric problem. What motivates them is something inside of them, something yeah. psychological. Yeah, themselves. Their own personality, their own self-bad image. Is it a desire to be heard yeah. by society? A desire to be appreciated or understood or have an impact? The desire to be someone which they never have been in their life. Sharif Kawashi may have succeeded in becoming one of France's most famous terrorists. But French authorities ordered he be buried without ceremony in an unmarked grave in this cemetery outside Paris. They've gone to great lengths to ensure that no one will ever know exactly which grave is his. The same treatment given to his brother Saeed and his friend Amadi Koulibaly. 60 Minutes, coming up after this short break. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. For the best from CBS Radio News whenever you want it, download our podcasts at cbsnews.com slash podcasts. As recently as five years ago, you would have been forgiven for not knowing exactly who Bradley Cooper was, despite the fact that he'd been in roughly 20 movies and four television series. Today, you have no excuse. He's had quite a year winning acclaim for two roles that couldn't be more different. One on stage, portraying a sensitive soul with a horrible affliction, and the other on film as a stoic, solitary Navy SEAL in Clint Eastwood's American Sniper. The latter earned Cooper his third Academy Award nomination in as many years, something only 10 male actors have ever done before. It puts him on a list with names like Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, Spencer Tracy, and Gregory Peck, and it announces his arrival not just as a major movie star, but as a committed, talented, and versatile actor. A friend of yours said, I think there's part of Bradley uh, that doesn't quite believe this has happened to him. Well, believe it in as much as I believe I'm sitting here talking to you. But, but the thrill's still there. Don't get me wrong. The thrill is still massive. You know, I mean, I, I wake up very happy every day. I'll tell you that. Mr. 
Cooper? It's where Bradley Cooper wakes up these days that's more problematic. For the past few weeks, he's been parachuting into L.A. for 24-hour binges of obligatory pre-Oscar hoopla. This year, it's American Sniper, which we'll get to later. The rest of the week, he wakes up 2,700 miles away in New York. That's him with a backpack, where he is currently the toast of Broadway, locked into one, sometimes two performances a day of The Elephant Man. You know, I always sort of talk about, to myself at least, or to my friends, about wanting to just keep life very simple. I found it most simple here in New York. You know, it's basically, I have, in a way, a nine-to-five job. You know, I I do eight shows a week. I live in New York City. Uh, I get to walk everywhere and, you know, just be one of the people of the city, and it's actually wonderful. You can move around all right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's nobody with me. I just came here. You know, I, I do everything on my own. So it's, uh, it's great. No paparazzi? People don't bug you? No, they get, they get me on the way from, from where I live to the, to the subway station. But for some reason, they don't want to spend the 250 and ride the subway with me. <laughs> so I lose them in the subway. The Elephant Man has been a huge success, smashing attendance records and winning Cooper excellent reviews from Broadway's toughest critics for a role that's been part of his consciousness for decades. At age 12, he decided he wanted to be an actor after watching the movie version. It tells the story of John Merrick, a horribly deformed British man with a saintly soul who's rescued from a 19th century freak show and given sanctuary at a London hospital. 28 years later, Cooper has produced, cast, and arranged the financing for the current Broadway production. You play John Merrick without any makeup, without any prosthesis. Mm Mm-hmm. Just you, Bradley Cooper. Yeah. And you have to convince the audience that you're him. Yeah. How do you do that? Uh, by believing I'm him. That's how I do it. If I'm acting like I'm him or I don't quite make that leap of faith, there's absolutely no way you're going to believe it. I had to do a tremendous amount of work to get to a place where I do believe I'm him. Part of the work was 20 years of research and part of it a performance unlike he's ever given. The transformation from Cooper to Merrick is shared by the audience in one of the early scenes. As the doctor is speaking to the pathological society, which actually is the audience of the play, and you see an actual photograph of Joseph Merrick, he is then describing all of his afflictions. From the upper jaw, there projected another mass of bone. And then I then interpret each one in a physical manner. The right hand was large and clumsy, uh, thin, or paddled rather than a hand. Almost mimicry, almost like a mime. To add a further burden to his trouble, the wretched man, when a boy, developed hip disease, which left him permanently lame, so that he could only walk with a stick. And once he's finished with that presentation, I'm fully physically transformed, but the soul hasn't been injected yet. He brings the cane over, steps away, and then says, please. Please. And that's the first time you hear Merrick alive. That is the moment where the transformation occurs. And if I don't make that leap at that moment, the rest of the play is not going to work. But it has through 111 performances, each one ending with a standing ovation and hundreds of people outside the stage door behind police barricades waiting for Cooper's autograph or a picture. Bradley, look this way quickly, please. Or a chance to touch someone People Magazine had once declared the sexiest man alive. Oh, my God. Bradley. Hi. 
but it's a moniker that belies his intelligence and talents. He's an excellent cook, speaks fluent French, and after graduating with honors from Georgetown University with a major in English, he borrowed $70,000 to get a master's degree from the actor's studio. How are you doing, Mr. De Niro? My name is Bradley Cooper. Uh, my question is regarding awakenings. You need a light? But Bradley Cooper was never a struggling young actor. He was making out with Carrie Bradshaw on Sex in the City while he was still at grad school. A year later, he had a TV series, Alias, alongside Jennifer Garner, and promptly paid off that college loan. But he was not an overnight sensation either. You may remember him as the obnoxious fiancé who made a big hit in The Wedding Crashers. Big tree fall hard, right? How many fingers I got up? Come on, Pepe, how many fingers I got up? Come on, you know I drive great when I'm drunk. But it took him four more years and a road trip to Vegas for a bachelor party to make him a movie star. The hangover grossed nearly a half a billion dollars worldwide. We lost Doug. What are you saying, Phil? We're getting married in five hours. Yeah. That's not going to happen. Really, things started to change, I guess, with Hangover. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was huge. Massive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Massive movie. Yeah. Anytime you're part of a movie that makes that much money in the box office, it's going to provide opportunities for other studios to take chances with you, just on a very mathematical level. That is the way it works. I mean, everybody has a number next to them about what their value is. And when you're casting a movie, any producer will tell you every actor has a certain amount of currency that uh, an investor will allow them to make so that you can get your money, your, your movie made. You had a, a perfectly good career. You would play generally either leading man or, or main supporting actors. And nobody during that time said, you know, Bradley Cooper's really a great actor. And now you've got three Academy Award nominations. How did that happen? Opportunity. People believing in me. I mean, people that have power willing to take a chance. That, that's everything. You know, you got to walk through the door and show them why you should be in the room. But, you know, the door's got to, you know, be open for you to walk through it. And one of those opportunities was Silver Linings Playbook. Absolutely. In this quirky romantic comedy, Cooper played a bipolar teacher who was discharged from a psych ward intent on reconciling with his ex-wife, only to meet Jennifer Lawrence, who's just as mixed up as he is. I was on Xanax and Effexor, but I agree, it wasn't as sharp, so I stopped. You ever take Klonopin? Klonopin, yeah. Right? Jesus. Like, is it what? Yeah. It landed Cooper his first Oscar nomination. I'm Federal Agent Richard DeMasso. The next year, he was nominated again in a supporting role for his portrayal of whacked-out FBI agent Richie DeMasso in American Hustle. I have a warrant for... I'm sorry, do I have the wrong office? This 701? Both films were written and directed by David O. Russell, the first to realize Cooper's potential. Why do you think he cast you? You know, I think that he saw something that he believed in. I remember him saying to me, you know, I've only seen you in first and second gear, and I think you've got about six gears. So I want to go to those gears, and I want people to see that, that, that this is the kind of landscape that you're working with with this actor. And, and that gave me a tremendous amount of uh, confidence. I just want to get the bad guys, but if I can't see him, I can't shoot him. Once again, in American Sniper, Cooper has turned in a performance that is vastly different than anything he has ever done in a film The New Yorker called A Subdued Celebration of a Warrior's Skill and a Sorrowful Lament over His Alienation in Misery. I'm coming home. It has generated heated debate about the morality of the war in Iraq and nearly $300 million at the box office. <laughs> Do you think this is a political movie? 
you know, uh, my reaction is like, no, but then we could have a discussion about everything's political. Do you know what I mean? But no, I know I never saw that. I saw that as telling a personal story. It's the story of Chris Kyle, a Navy SEAL sniper who survived four tours in Iraq with 160 confirmed kills, protecting the backs of U.S. Marines in places like Fallujah and Sadr City. And it's about the toll it took on him and his family. Most challenging role you've ever had? Oh, without question. Uh, and for nothing else other than, Steve, that he was a real human being. It's like you just work hard, work hard, work hard, do all the work, do all, and then hopefully you just pray that it just starts to happen so that when you walk on that set that first day, he's there. To make it happen, Cooper decided he needed to put on 40 pounds of muscle to capture Kyle's enormous physical presence and calm demeanor. For three months, he ate 6,000 calories every day and spent eight hours working out and perfecting Kyle's Texas accent. The weekends were spent on sniper training with former SEALs. What were you trying to convey with this movie? I mean, what did you hope to convey? If we were able to hit the bullseye, one was vets, men and women in the service who watch the movie feel like they see their story up there or they can relate to it. Number two would be people, the 99% of the population that has not, knows nothing about what military men in service go through or their families would see it in a different light and say, oh, wow, I had no idea. Hold on, I got a woman and a kid 200 yards out moving towards the convoy. And she's carrying something. Yeah, she's got a grenade. She's got an RKG, Russian grenade. She's saying to the kid, you got eyes on this? Can you confirm? Negative. You know the ROV. Your call. I'm on the gun. I've shot live ammo through it, and I've seen what it does. I know that I can take them out if I want to. But my whole stomach, Steve, turned like, like that the minute I saw them through the crosshairs. Even though it was an empty gun, there were no bullets. You know, they're actors. It's not a real Russian grenade. But because of the work that I had done, it was enough so that my body physically changed. So those little things key you into what maybe having a glimpse of what uh, any soldier has to go through. Cooper gives much of the credit to director Clint Eastwood, who allowed him to observe and participate in every aspect of the production. And in Cooper, Eastwood sees a little bit of himself. He's probably as professional as any actor his age I've ever met. I I never caught him acting, and that's a compliment. He's going to be a great director one of these days when he gets tired of acting, which we hope is not too soon. (laughs) Bradley Cooper just turned 40, so there are lots of things he plans to do, including eventually having a family when he has the time and all the right things fall into place. He grew up in a tight Irish-Italian clan in Philadelphia, which he still considers home. We spent an afternoon there with his entourage, which consisted of his dog Charlotte, his cousin Colin Campano, and his mother Gloria. When the Elephant Man ends its run this Saturday night, they'll have just enough time to get to L.A. for the Oscars on Sunday. So you you are going as this date? Oh, yeah. This is like the third third year in a row. I know. It's, I love it. it. No, oh. I love it. When my son... Are you kidding? This is his third time. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this year he'll do it. I really do. And if he doesn't... We lost Bob Simon this past Wednesday night. All of us lost him. His family, his colleagues here at 60 Minutes and all of you who have watched this broadcast over the years. 
We lost his curiosity, his unparalleled writing ability, his calm bravery under fire. And we lost his sense of justice and his sense of the absurd, both of which he brought to so much of his reporting. Bob has been both a model and an inspiration to many of us during the 47 years he spent at CBS News. Next Sunday, we'll broadcast a full tribute to him, including some of his and our favorite Bob Simon stories. I'm Steve Croft. Good night.